But in order to understand the parable, and, and this parable is going to demonstrate for us the mission of, of Christ, but in, in order for us to be able to really understand the parable, we've we got to start way in the beginning of the chapter. And so we are in Luke chapter 14. I'm going to ask that we turn there to verse 1. And bear with me, because I might be pausing quite a bit, and there's a lot of scripture. Um, I like to observe the uh, text. There's a lot of important information as we're going through the scripture. So if you want to take notes, great. If not, that's fine too. Um, the scripture will be up on the screen. So again, before we go into the parable, we need to understand what was happening. Why did Jesus say the parable? When did he say it? What was the context? So we're going with verse 1. Luke chapter 14. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. I'll stop right there. If not, we'll miss it. It gives us the context here. He was at a house of a prominent Pharisee, probably a member of the Sanhedrin. You're talking about uh, an elite group of people were at this house. So he went there to eat. It was a Sabbath. And the phrase at the very end says that he was being carefully watched. There was a group of people, the religious elite wanted to uh, entrap him. They, they wanted to get him. So keep that in the back of your mind. It says in verse 2, there in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. Very interesting. There was, there was a man that was suffering, that he was retaining liquid, fluid. Um, it was very likely due to maybe uh, heart failure, kidney failure, liver failure. But there was a man with, that had, again, this swelling. And Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And he asked the question because he knew the hearts of men, just like he knows our hearts this morning. And he knew what these Pharisees wanted. They wanted to trap him. They wanted to kill him. So he asked the question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And if they would have, say, if they would have said, yes, it's lawful, then they wouldn't be able to accuse him of breaking the law or breaking the Sabbath. And if they were to say no, well, they knew that there was hypocrisy. And for that, I'm going to jump to a different a different passage is one chapter be behind Luke 13. And listen to this, starting in verse 10. Here's a different Sabbath. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues. And a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. I'll, and I'll pause for a second, just another observation. Bible says that this, there was a woman that was, that was bent over. And it wasn't your typical sickness. Not like a virus or just your, a natural sickness. It was a sickness that was caused by a demon, actually. That's, that's what the Bible says. It says that she was crippled by a spirit for 18 years. To the point that she couldn't straighten up. Verse 12, and when Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately 
she straightened up and praised God. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leader said to the people, there are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. The Lord answered him, you hypocrites, doesn't each one of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to, uh, to give it water? They should not, this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? When he said this, all his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. Going back to chapter 14. So he poses the question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? If they say it is lawful, they can't accuse him and, and they can't trap him. If, if, he, if they were to respond, uh, no, it is not lawful, well, then they themselves are guilty of breaking the Sabbath. So with a lot of wisdom, Jesus asks the question. And verse 4 says, but they remain silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Another observation. This man with this swelling had all this retention of fluid. The Bible says that he, 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 he took hold of the man. He actually touched the man. And in that culture, the Jews believed that if somebody had some type of infirmity, it was due to sin. Back in John chapter 9, there was a man that was born blind. And they even asked Jesus, well, who sinned? Did this, this guy sin or did the parents sin? And Jesus said, neither one sinned. This, was, this is done for the glory of God. But the Jews, feeling the arrogance, um, couldn't believe that Jesus would have touched them, but he did. He touched them and he healed them. Verse 5 says, then he asked them, if one of you has a child or, or an ox that falls into a well, on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say again. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host will, who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Remember the context. He's at a house of this prominent Pharisee. The religious elite are all there, and he's, and he's speaking to them, and, he's, and he knows their heart, he knows what's in their hearts, and he's talking about the arrogance that they think that the kingdom of God is, is all just for themselves because they're Jews. Then Jesus, verse 12 says, said to his host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors if you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. 
So he's telling all these things at this house of this prominent Pharisee. And here comes the parable, or here comes the reason behind the parable. Verse 15. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Now, at face value, there's nothing wrong with what he said. This person is saying, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. It's true. Blessed are we who are going to partake of this great feast. But he's not saying that for that reason he is, he's, he is upset with what is being said by, by Jesus. Um, and so he thinks that the kingdom only belongs to him because of, of his race, again, because he's part of this Jewish people. And so verse 16 is when the parable starts, and that's the reason why Jesus gives this parable is because this man thinks that he is secure simply because he, 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 he was born of Abraham. He thinks that he is going to heaven simply because he's coming from that lineage, and that is not true. Verse 16 says this, Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. Here's the story. And by the way, a parable is simply, it's a story that Jesus would, would give to illustrate a spiritual truth. That's all it is, it's a story. So again, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they, but they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said, I have just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm, and, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to, the, to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. So here we have the parable. And what does that have to do with the mission of Christ? Well, it has everything to do with the mission of Christ. The mission of Christ, as I said previously, was to come to seek and to save those who are lost. That's why Jesus was born. He was born only to die. So that through his death, he could redeem us. Amen. That was the whole purpose. To, to, God loves lost people. That was, that's his mission, to save the lost. And as a church, as the, the church, and also as real life, that is our mission too. Is to extend that invitation to people who are lost. To go and to preach the gospel. To go and to make disciples. And I want to just share some observations from this, from this parable. 
I want to start off by saying that in Isaiah, or in the Old Testament, these Pharisees were, were very aware, they, they were very aware of this banquet, of this, they, they, they pictured the, the resurrection of the righteous as a magnificent uh, banquet. If we go to Isaiah chapter 25, listen as I read these verses, Isaiah 25, 6 through 9. Because as, uh, as Jesus is, is given the parable, they understand this. They know the law. They know the scriptures. In Isaiah 25, verse 6, it says, On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples. The sheet that covers all nations, he will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day, they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. The Old Testament is very clear when it, when it pictures the resurrection of the righteous. It's, it, it is seen as a great banquet and, and brother and sister, you and I have that hope that when, that when the Lord comes, when we are resurrected, we will partake. It will be a beautiful thing. We will be seated at the table with God. But there's a mission God wants for people to be saved. He doesn't desire for anyone to, 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 to die and, and to go to an uh, eternal punishment. He wants the gospel to be proclaimed. That is the mission. That's the reason why he came, and that's the reason why we exist. But I want to give some observations of, of, uh, from, this, from this parable. Here's the, here's the first observation. I want you to observe the invitation. Going back to verse 16. Jesus starts off by saying, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. When Jesus gave this parable, and he's talking about the invitation, it is his invitation to humanity. It is his invitation for people to come to his feet, for people to repent of his sins, for, for people to receive him as God. But John says that he came to his own and his own received him not. The invitation is for all of mankind. And God wants us, his church, to go out and to preach the gospel and to, and to give this invitation to everyone. That is the first observation, that there, that, that there exists an invitation and, that, and that this invitation must be given out to uh, everyone because there is a, a great banquet, as the Bible says, and it's a banquet like no other. No other banquet, no other party, no other pachanga is, is, is going to compare to it. And that's when God's people are going to be together with, with him. I want to give you a second observation. And the second observation is, are, are the excuses. And so here are people, are, people are invited. And then they, they begin to give excuses. Verse 18 says, but they all like began to make excuses. The first one said... I have just bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Now, I want you to, to notice something. This is a very lame excuse, because who in their right mind is going to buy a field without first seeing it? 
right? But it's, it's quite evident when you read this that it just doesn't make any sense. The first one, again, is, is, is saying, I have just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. The second one says, I have just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Again, who's going to buy oxen to place the yoke to see if, if they're able to, to harvest the field or to cultivate the, uh, the ground? Who's going to make that major expense without first taking a look at the oxen? But again, this, 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 were, this was the excuse of the second person. Still another, verse 20, said, I just got married, so I can't come. You know, you have excuse after excuse. If this is such a great banquet, like, like, like no other banquet, then I would think that the husband would, and the wife would be delighted to go. So again, it just doesn't make any sense. But I'll tell you that that's what happens to, to us too, to people. When you, don't be surprised that when you take the gospel, when you share God's plan of salvation with people, that they're going to make excuses because that's how it is. You know, it seems, John MacArthur said that it seems, let me, let me, let me get it right because I, I wrote it down. It seems, it, it, it seems that, God is not, um, that God is more willing to save sinners than sinners are to be saved. That's, that's what John MacArthur wrote. You know, God has done everything to save mankind, but again, Here's man just making excuse after excuse, and, 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 and that happens still now. There might even be people here today that are, that are sitting next to you or maybe in front of you or behind you. That Yeah, you know what? They come to church, but you know what? Their heart is, is so far away from God, and they make excuse after excuse. They'll say, you know what? I just, I'm just coming because you're making me come because if not, it's going to create problems, or maybe it's the routine, or you know what? I don't really need God right now, but people make excuses to, to reject him, and that's what the Pharisees did. That's what the, what the Jews did. Because Christ came to his own, but his own received them not. They rejected him. And in this parable, we see the same thing, that people reject God. People still reject God, and people are going to reject God. Third observation. We saw the invitation. We saw the excuses. Now let's talk about who are the ones that are included in this banquet. Well, after, the, after the, those that were invited refused, verse 23, then the master, um, sorry, the, verse 21, the servant came back and reported this to his master. And the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. Who are the ones that are included now in this, in this banquet? It's those that are the marginalized. Those who th that perhaps in, in many eyes, many people might seem, though, those people maybe are not worth it. Maybe because they have addictions. Or maybe because they've made mistakes. Or maybe because they don't dress the way we do or they don't have the same titles that we do or the same level of education or, or maybe because, I don't know, they're seen as failures. But I'll tell you one thing.
that God wants those, those, those lost people found. Uh, God cares about them. You know, it's hard to love what some people might call the unlovable because maybe they've lost all credibility in, in our eyes. Maybe, maybe we judge them and say, you know what? Man, he, man, he caused it. He got into the, this mess himself. Let him get out of it. I don't know. What I do know is what Jesus said, so when, that when the Holy Spirit would come upon us, he would empower us to become his witnesses. And he's told his disciples to go into Jerusalem, Judea, but not just Judea, but to Samaria. And Samaria was, was this province that, boy, people just, the Jews and the Samaritans wouldn't mix. They, they had issues that, for centuries, they couldn't stand each other, but Jesus is telling them, no, I want you to go to those people. You know, is there a person in your life, is there a person maybe in our lives that we really can't stand? Like, you know, when I see them, it's like oh, my stomach kind of just turns. It's like he just, he's so annoying. I just, no lo quiero ver ni en pintura. You know, I don't even want to see this person. Uh, those are the people God has called us to go and reach with the gospel. That's the mission. That's the mission to go and to proclaim the gospel. And those are the ones that are included. A fourth observation are the ones that aren't included, the ones that are excluded. It says in verse 24, I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. The ones that think that, that are the most righteous or the ones that have this holier-than-thou type of attitude are the ones that are excluded. And here you have in this house sharing a meal with the Son of God himself. God himself in the flesh was right at their table. It was there eating with them, and they couldn't realize it. They, they didn't see it. The one who created all things, the one that spoke the world into existence was there. But their arrogance, their religion kept them blinded. And you know, we were like that once, blinded too, lost, dead in our transgressions until, until God called us, until God set us free, until God removed that veil from our eyes. You know, we're not called to save anybody because we can't. As a matter of fact, the only ones that are going to be saved are the ones that the Father draws to himself. But here's my last observation, is that they need to be compelled. It's, it's interesting that those that are marginalized, the lame, the blind, those that are the outcasts are the ones that are to be given the invitation, but, but they, they're not going to know about the banquet unless somebody goes and tells them. And so that's my observation is that there is a servant, there are servants in this story, that are entrusted with the invitation. And, and my beloved brother and sister, that's you and I. If we belong to Jesus, we are his ambassadors. It doesn't matter if you feel like one or not. You might not see yourself as, as a holy person, but the, but, the, but the Bible says you are. And you're holy. You're holy. You are a royal priesthood. A people belonging to God. Doesn't matter if you messed up this morning. Doesn't matter if you got into an argument this morning. 
It doesn't change your identity. And God has entrusted to us his gospel that, that must be preached. And it's interesting that the Bible says that the master, when he tells the servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them. It's like implore them. It's like may your heart break, like just like God's heart breaks for the lost people. And that's the mission that you and I are supposed to compel people. I'm not saying like beg them or anything like that, but, but, but boy, our hearts should be breaking for the lost people. And we are called to go and to preach the gospel. There's a, a verse in Romans, and I'm going to go to it because I, I, I want to say it the right way. It says in Romans 10, verses 14 through 15, how then... Can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of, of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. That's you. That's me. If you are a Christian, this is our responsibility to go and to preach the gospel. And that's the reason why we are holding these trainings on how to share our faith. Uh, if you need some help, we're here for you too. But that is our job that, that God has entrusted us. And that is, again, that is the mission of the church is to preach the gospel and to make disciples. I want to conclude with this. It's not enough to just share the gospel. Because Jesus says for us to make disciples of all nations. And I want to tell you what that entails. What does it mean to make a disciple? Well, it means simply like this. Pour your life into somebody else. You know, the Bible says that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, right? For correcting, even for rebuking sometimes. To make a disciple means that you're going you're gonna to pour your life into somebody else and you're going to teach them, you're going to pray with them, you're going to be with them, even when you have no words to say. Maybe they're going through a really rough time. But to make a disciple, it's investing our lives into, into them. You know, uh, I see the baby that my sister-in-law is, you know, has, been, has been taking care of. And I remember my boys. I have four boys. And I remember when they were small. I, just, I used to love just to watch them. I don't know you parents ever did this, but, you know, when it was my turn to feed, the, to feed them the, the bottle, I would get my, my boys and I would give them the bottle and they would start to chupar. Okay, I don't know what that is. Okay, they would suck on the bottle, right? And I, and I was just amazed at just that sucking action, right? And they were just sucking away and, and I could see their big eyes because their dad and their mom, right? Well, we both have big eyes. You know, pobrecitos, right? They call them Garfield. Come on, somebody. <laughs> but uh, but uh, here, here they are sucking away. And I would see my boys. And, and you know, and they're so fragile. They're so dependent on us for everything, for food. Like, because they couldn't get up and fix a sandwich or anything like that. They're, they're dependent, 100% dependent upon us for food, for shelter, for love. And so when I think about a disciple, I think about a baby because when we preach the gospel and, it, and when they respond, they're newborn spiritual babies and they can't fend for themselves. They need the body of Christ. 
They need a disciple. They need somebody who's going to be there to feed them too and to take care of them. And that's what it means to make disciples is to pour your life into somebody else. And sometimes it means correcting them. You know, I, hey, can I just be open <laughs> about things? You know, a lot of times, you know, we know there's an elephant in the room. It's not me, okay? But <laughs> there's an elephant in the room. Um, and everybody knows there's issues, right? A lot of times you know that this person is, is, is having trouble. But we say nothing at all. Um, or sometimes we know that they've kind of gone astray and, and they're doing something that is shameful. And sometimes we'll rationalize by saying, you know, that's not my place. That's, you know, that's why we got the pastor and the elders to do that. I want to share something with you because this is, again, and I'm, and I'm concluding with this, I promise. But if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 5, there's this, this stuff that was happening in the church. And it, it, it was a case of incest, right? And Paul says that, it says in verse 1, it was actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. This father's wife. And you're proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread, leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all. Meaning the people of this world who are immortal or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this, this world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or a sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. Don't, do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? Let me, let me pause for a second. You know, it seems that if we really want to make disciples, what we're doing is we're getting into the, the, the lives of people. Not in a condemning type of way, but in a loving type of way. We want to help them. But it is our responsibility to call them out. And just like it's their responsibility to call things out in our own lives. Now, I'm fully aware, man, we, we all fall short. All of us do. We all sin. But that's why we got the church, to encourage and to exhort or to even rebuke us when, when need be. But there was a case in this particular church, and everybody knew about it. Everybody knew that this man was sleeping with his father's wife, and they did nothing 
They knew about it. And nobody perhaps approached them or whatever and here, I don't know, maybe he was even ministering in the church. I have no idea. But here, Paul is saying, it's like, when, when you... When you see something, love the person enough to correct them in a loving way, but do it. That's your brother or, or, or that's your sister. And, and I'll tell you that if they, if, they, if they do belong to the faith, if they are believers, man, they're going to love you for it. They're going to tell you thank you. Yeah, they're going to be embarrassed perhaps. They're going to be, maybe they're, they're going to feel shame, but they're going to thank you for it. Because when you're a believer down deep inside, you don't want to sin. Man, I don't think anybody wakes up in the morning and says, you know what, today I think it's a good day for me to sin, for me to mess up, do something. No. But I'll tell you something, church, that if we're going to fulfill the mission of Christ, of reaching the lost, it's not just about preaching the gospel, but it's about discipling them. It's about choosing that one, two, or three people that you're going to pour, pour your life into. That, that's, that's, that's our mandate. That is the Great Commission. That's what, that's what we're called to do. Think of the baby. They're helpless, and they're dependent upon us. And, and may God just give us a heart for the lost. May God give us a heart for one another. May we not be afraid to approach a brother or a sister and just to pray with them and just to talk to them. Um, and if you think, well, that's not my place, well, I, I just showed you that it is. Um, we say, well, I'm judging them. Well, the Bible says that you can judge those that are inside. I'm not talking about condemning, but I'm talking about you calling people out because that's the mission is, you know what? Lost people matter to God. And if, and if we love God, if we, if we want to follow the great commandment of loving God with all our heart, with all of our being, we cannot love God and, lo- and not love people. And if we love people, we're going to truly love them, which means we're going to pray for them we're going to walk with them. We're going to cry with them. We're going to correct them. We're going to hold them up. We're, we're going to stand in the gap. And, uh, and, and we're going to experience victory together. Because, hey, we're, we're just passing through. But may God reawaken us to his mission of making disciples of all nations. Please rise with me. Let us pray. Father, this, this morning, I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for your word. God, I thank you that you choose to use broken people. Lord, you're, you, you are a master of doing that. I think about all your servants in the scripture, Lord, how they were all broken, just like we are. But even like that, God, you get more glory in using broken people. And so, Father, we are aware, we are cognizant of our own weaknesses, of our own need of you. And I pray, Father, that you would just strengthen us. I pray that you would remind us, Lord, of the mission of taking the gospel, taking this invitation to the lame, to the poor, to the blind, to those, God, that perhaps have been forgotten by society. I pray that you would give us eyes to see. Lord, may, may we be an, be an impact, a blessing to those that are, that are found within our sphere of, of, of influence. Lord, reawaken us as a church. Reawaken, Lord, us individually. 
Lord, give us courage. Give us boldness. Give us love. Lord, we know that love covers all things. We thank you, Jesus. We, we commit ourselves to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.